I have to be delusional enough to think people are going to listen to this. It's thunderstorming outside. There's lightning. Hit me with it. Come on. How smart can you be when you have huge mantids? Okay, he, him. Go put your pronouns and go sit in the corner. I'll take care of this. It's just common sense. Hi, Mr. Pickle. How you doing tonight? Doing good. Glad to be here. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to be on here, we being myself and my audience. So uh, thank you again for coming on. For those who may not know, could you just introduce yourself to the people? Well, hey, everybody. I'm Bowtie Pickle. I'm an anonymous cartoon fermented vegetable, and uh, I am a smart contract developer and auditor. So I write, deploy, and uh verify the security of smart contracts that go onto Ethereum or any Ethereum-compatible blockchain. And how did you find the jungle? So I had followed the original Wall Street Playboys incarnation of the Bowtie Bull team. And for quite a while, probably as far back as 2016 or so. So I was still a wee lad. <laughs> and... Um, I didn't really do a lot with it, you know? It kind of seeped into my background perception of things, but I didn't do the kind of recommended route of becoming a software engineer or a sales professional or something like that. Um, I didn't start any side businesses. I didn't have anything like that. So a lot of that information just kind of sat there, didn't really get used Maybe it had a little effect on kind of how I viewed things, but didn't really do anything. And then in uh, 2021, early 2021, when Bowtie Bull became Bowtie Bull, they switched over from the Wall Street Playboys brand. At first, I was kind of irritated because now I had to like, go and make a Twitter account. I never made a Twitter account before in order to, to stalk them and keep getting uh, updates and keep reading their content. And then as I started to, to read this, I was like, man, this, this jungle thing that they're kicking off is pretty neat. And uh, there's all these cool people that are, that are joining, and it seems like there's this access to this really, really wide array of different types of people and expertise. You had people like Ox already starting to pop off above the crowd. And um, so you know, I made my Twitter account to lurk. It was just some random anonymous handle, no profile picture, one of those people. And then um, Ox started doing his first 90-day uh, challenge. And I was like, something just kind of just kind of clicked in me. Like, I was just sitting there. I wasn't really doing anything with my life. You know, I had my, like, pretty decent job, but it was starting, already starting to feel the pinch in the beginning of COVID there. And I was like, you know what, if I... If I can't do it with, with this, you know, I know I need to get in better shape and I may, I'm never going to do it. So I made my, uh, made my bow tie handle. I picked uh, I picked bow tie pickle because that was the example that some, uh, long gone bow tie anon had used when they were making a post on how to make a bow tie avatar. Mm -hmm. There's like slapped together some clip art. And there's, a, there's a here's a pickle. Let's put some hands and some laser eyes on him. Look, guys, <laughs> it's easy. And they're like, if anyone wants this, they can have it. And I looked around and no one had taken it. So I'm like, all right, save me the trouble of pulling up Photoshop. 
And so a bow-tied pickle was born. And did you know right away when you made your account that you wanted to talk about smart contracts, coding, all that type of thing? No, I had no idea what I was doing. I had absolutely no idea. My first, you know, kind of post or content contribution was really just like reply guying Ox helpfully a couple of times. And then I posted like a couple of threads on the assorted areas that I had expertise in, like camping and some chemistry threads and stuff like that. But along the way in the background, I was kind of, I was reading all the bowtie bull content on cryptocurrency and decentralized finance. And I was like, this, this stuff's kind of interesting. You know, like I've always been you know, pretty good at coding. Maybe I should, maybe I should take a crack at this. And I started learning solidity, uh, so, you know, sometime that, that summer. Then I started working on portfolio projects in uh, about October time frame. In October of 2021? Mm-hmm. Wow. So not that long ago. And now you are hiring, teaching, informing so many people on how to do exactly that. So that's very impressive. How much of the coding you knew previously, and I don't know if you were a software engineer or you were in Web 2, how much of that was applicable to Web 3? Was it a difficult thing to pick up or was it mainly very similar in just a new language to learn? So my previous coding experience, I was in a technical like engineering field, but not a software engineering field. I'd never done development work as a profession or career or anything like that. Um, I knew how to do basic coding, scripting kind of stuff from my coursework and from noodling around just to, you know, as a teenager, I'd learned Python and uh, I had the kind of basic ability to run some scripts, manipulate data, but it was very much kind of a script kitty kind of knowledge of this. But I knew that I learned quickly. I enjoyed the work. I just never had any kind of reason necessarily to actually pick it up in a more serious fashion. I just learned what I needed to for my jobs and then got on with it. Um, and so I didn't come into this as like a professional developer of any kind. So all that skill had to be picked up on the job. And then as far as the difficult smart contract programming, particularly versus anything else, um, like if you're good at coding, you'll be, you'll be good at smart contracts. Probably there are a few things which are more unique to smart contracts or more meaningful than in some other instances. But the same kind of things that will, will serve you well in other disciplines will serve you well in smart contracts as well. Okay, interesting. And so this is something I've often considered. I, a lot of my good friends and family are Web2 software engineers. And so they want to start something on the side. There's a question of should they invest the time in learning Solidity, learning smart contracts, and doing some side work as a smart contract dev or should they build products and like build a SaaS product for instance with their web 2 uh, experience and so i wonder if you have any guidance on that for who should or should everyone head to web 3 because it's the future or is there a reason to stick in web 2 and build a different type of program on the side i feel like this this is a question that varies a lot depending on 
the person. Mm. The Web3 space in general, and by Web3, I mean the smart contracts that go onto the blockchain, the websites that are supposed to interface with smart contracts, etc. So both smart contracting, smart contracts and Web3 development. Um, the whole space is still very much in its infancy. There's a lot of tooling, particularly, has not yet been developed or is kind of in its uh, more infant stage. The overall sophistication of developers is still relatively low. There's a lot of like, self-taught people like myself. Um, there's not there's not as many of like you know, Fang software engineers kicking it around in the crypto space and so this presents a good opportunity for people is if you're good and you have the chops for it but you don't necessarily have the credentials that you would need to break into a more traditional development background this can be a great place for you to pick that up because you, if you learn the if you learn the basics quickly and you can get a few good portfolio projects done then you can start moving size as it were in a much more uh, accelerated fashion that makes a ton of sense and that's one of the most interesting parts of software engineering and computer science in general is that you can build your resume with a laptop and you can build projects that prove you know what you're doing whereas in a different type of engineering you can't exactly build a rocket ship on your own so it's harder to uh, build up your <laughs> resume i think um, in other disciplines but I think that's a really good point that for people who don't come from pedigreed backgrounds with computer mm -hmm. science, this is a great opportunity, especially because it's so anonymous in a lot of ways. So you don't need to get through the resume barrier. You don't need to get it pulled. You just have to prove that you can build something and something like a build space. I'm sure you're familiar with mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where you can they teach you what products or projects rather to work on and build and you have your whole portfolio. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I guess my question is, you know, as the price of Bitcoin and other big cryptos really declines or fluctuates, does the air seem to just come out of the balloon and there's so many, so many fewer people trying to build in this space? Is it something that is still very risky? Like for someone who is an entrepreneur and a programmer, is it smart to invest heavily in Web3 right now? And is it something that they can continue to move forward is my question? Because it is in its infancy, as you've said, like, where's the opportunity? What should people be looking at? I think there's a couple, a couple kind of parts to that, I think. One is it's important to recognize that the crypto space in general is still very risky. There's a lot of black swans in it that mm -hmm. just don't exist for other things like you don't have to worry about the u.s government banning like you know an e-commerce site mm -hmm. unless it's like something shady or whatever but you, they're not going to ban just e-commerce sites in general they may very well ban crypto in some you know some fashion or otherwise make it very prohibitive to access so you have all these kind of black swan events that could happen with this there's also a lot of you know technological risk, volatility in the market, et cetera. So something that's a good idea now might not be a good idea later. Something that was a good idea in the bull market just doesn't cut it in the bear market, et cetera. So I think if you have a good idea, then there's always going to be 
an opportunity for that idea to flourish. It just may be a bit harder when you have you know, liquidity issues in the, the bear market, etc. There's a lot less slush. And you saw that with, uh, you know, after the big crashes and the development activity was basically everyone was holding onto their pants and trying to, trying to ship things more as let's keep some software development going so that we keep getting some good press releases to keep, you know, people from remembering that our project exists. Right. It was more of that versus a lot of new innovative stuff launching. However, you know, the new innovative stuff that did launch did do very well. Because if it could succeed there, it can succeed anywhere. But you don't see a lot of just slush. And like you see now with all these meme coins, like the fact that people are sending millions of dollars to some guy's wallet for a pre-sale, like you, you deserve to lose all of that. You right. have no idea what you're doing. Right. And that gives crypto and Web3 a bad rep because it all Absolutely. seems like Ponzi schemes and shit coins, all of that type of thing, when there is a lot of value and a lot of real use for this stuff and it's ingenious in a lot of ways and i want to get more into that and into the specifics behind some of the bigger cryptos but i have one question as a contract developer if you are contracted to write the code for a shitcoin and that shitcoin is in fact a shitcoin and it's a ponzi scheme could you be held liable in any way could they come after you because you wrote the code or are you completely, you wipe your hands of this, I just did what I was told to make? This is why I don't deploy shit coins. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, when you're talking about like the really shady stuff, you know, yeah. obviously I think at that point you do risk legal culpability for it. And um, that's something that I would, I would approach very cautiously if I thought there was any kind of thing like that. If there's no maliciousness or you know malfeasance in something it's just a bad idea then i don't think there's necessarily that much risk in it you know one of my nft projects that i did the nft contract for it was a terrible idea they had <laughs> you know no idea what they were doing it, it was doomed to failure from the start but i wrote the contract the contract performed perfectly the contract didn't have vulnerabilities it didn't have the ability for them to rug people and their project just flopped face first into the dirt. They sold like 10 units out of their like 10,000 collection that they were trying to do. Oh. Yeah. So, and I sleep with a clean conscience for that one because <laughs> there's just no, there's no, there's no way that was happening. Is there any desire on your end to be the, you know, the idea maker and the writer of the contracts or do you want to stay in the realm of and i don't know maybe you have already but um do you want to stay in the realm of being the one who builds the thing or do you have any interest in making your own tokens coins projects um in the future the skill set to design a successful protocol and the skill set to build the protocol are not necessarily the same thing you have to especially tokenomics designing something that's intelligent in terms of how it needs to, how the value accrues, value flows, is there a flywheel, is there a use case, et cetera. That's all a much different equation than what it takes to successfully build one of these things. So at the moment, no, I'm going to be sticking to the building side of uh, things. And that can be, I will point out, it, does, it doesn't have to, have to be like an order taking thing. Mm -hmm. Like as one of my uh, protocols that I'm working on right now, 
you, they have the, the design for it in terms of what it's supposed to do in a business case. But in terms of the architecture and how that all actually works on chain, I've had basically a free hand in that. And so the entire protocol design in terms of the architecture of how it works is all my, you know, my conception. Yeah, I mean, I think the execution is arguably harder um, to actually make the idea work in reality. I was just wondering if you had any dreams to be the next <laughs> Not at whoever. The moment, no. Yes, <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of risk involved in that, but um, very interesting stuff. So maybe we should talk a bit about the gold standard cryptos and what makes them gold standard compared to a shitcoin. This is always something that people ask me about because I am the crypto oracle for my friends, which is not saying very much, but they think I know a lot about it. Um, and it's interesting that you can spot a shitcoin very well now because you don't want to do contracts for it. So that's that's a helpful piece of information. But maybe we'll just start with Bitcoin. So I know a bit about it. I understand that the magic of Bitcoin is the asymmetrical uh, requirements or the asymmetrical verification process in that someone has to work very hard, it's expend a lot of energy to mine the Bitcoin, but it's very, very easy to verify transactions. And because it was so difficult for them to mine the Bitcoin, they have no incentive to verify false transactions, which would be the concern with a decentralized mining process because that would tank the value of Bitcoin, which they just expended a ton of energy to mine. So the, the genius for that I understand is that incentive problem in that people all over the world that are self-interested are only incentivized to do something that is good for the blockchain, which is verify true transactions and not double spend the Bitcoin. Would you say that's a fair understanding? Yeah, so that's a good kind of basic level understanding of it. You know, the the incentive of it is the base kind of the base of the whole, the whole crypto security model, whether that's for Bitcoin or for Ethereum or something. But the basic idea is that you have to expend some some real resource to, in order to do this. It's not like some petition where you can spin up you know a thousand fake email addresses and you know sway the, the outcome of the vote you know you have to, to tie up this real value in the case of bitcoin you have to put in these you know, buy these expensive computer chips to do it you have to perform this expensive computational work it takes real electricity etc and this is the proof of work in bitcoin is you putting in these real world resources into producing this you know, continuing the blockchain and that that expenditure by everyone is uh, is what secures the, the network because it's not just that you you are incentivized to you have a, you have do have a rational economic incentive to not you know tank it but let's say you're malicious you can't the way the protocol is designed you can't just uh, mine a block with double spins in it unless you also have enough to continue to like to, uh, to build on that basically. Hmm. So this is where you come to the idea of the 51% attack, which is that you have to control 51% of the 
the how they call it hash power, but basically the computing power that's going into actually mining Bitcoin. If you don't control 51% of that, you can't make false claims about the state of the uh, of the blockchain. And a false claim would be double spending something, claiming that uh, you know I have you know now a hundred Bitcoin and you don't, etc. Right. Okay. So that makes sense. That is a well-designed incentive structure. And then the other benefit of Bitcoin is that the supply is capped. I mean, it's they're mining less and less throughout time. Eventually it will be capped in like 60 or 70 years, whatever it is. So you're not concerned about inflation the way you are with fiat currency. So it's those two big things is that in my understanding, one, thick supply and then two you can trust it in that there's no compared to other cryptos there's no concern of bad actors is there anything yeah, else so, that you would add to like the bitcoin story kind of the bitcoin story i mean bitcoin is the first not the first cryptocurrency but it's the first one that really saw like this major kind of adoption and what bitcoin is fundamentally is digital cash you know you can transfer value that's the main point of it is that you have this way that you can trustlessly make payments online you with this decentralized ledger you don't have centralization you have decentralization so you can't can't be shut down by any one geographic location no individual actor can make these claims about it and this is this digital cash makes it a secure way for you to make tr transfer value around. And there are other you know, cryptocurrencies that have come after that are also aiming to do this. I mean, you can transfer Ethereum around, you can transfer Dogecoin around, you know. But what makes Bitcoin itself have a particularly alluring narrative is this is this 21 million supply cap, like you mentioned, it's inflation. You know, it's the narrative that's marketed as somewhat as digital gold. Like this is going to be the store of value in the, the kind of digital age. And the reason why I would buy Bitcoin over gold today is what exactly? Well, one, you can physically, you know, own your, your Bitcoin a much easier way than you can your gold. You know, you can have your, your wallet, your private keys, and you, you can have your control over it because your keys control your coins. If you have Bitcoin sitting in a wallet and I own the private keys too, uh, that's my Bitcoin. I can do whatever I want with it. I can spend it. I cannot spend it, etc. Whereas if I want to have gold, you know, you got to go through this like laborious process of actually getting the gold. And now I've got this gold. Okay, cool. What do I do with you know, 10 pounds of gold? I'm just going to stick it under my mattress. If I want to use it for whatever reason, then you know, I've got to sell it. I've got to find somebody that's willing to take gold. Like you can't, you can use it as store value, but you can't use it in a day to day right. basis. Right. And then, you know, the common quip against Bitcoin is what if the government bans it? 
and you're no longer able to convert it into dollars. So what, and if you're not a huge proponent of Bitcoin, you know, you don't have to defend it to the end, but what would you say to someone who says that? So this problem, you know, is something that's always going to exist with cryptocurrencies until we you know, fight the great Armageddon legal battle or, you know, whatever. There's, there's some point down the road you're going to end up in some kind of equilibrium, I think, where either this stuff just gets completely crushed, you know, the government successfully kind of eradicated, or the genie is out of the bottle. There's no way that the you know, the governments can tamp this stuff down effectively. So they settle for, you know, maybe regulating it in some fashion or otherwise kind of living alongside it. There'll probably be a central bank digital currency that people are using for their day-to-day but uh, you know, cryptos will continue in some fashion. So basically, those are kind of the two most likely futures in my mind. Like all of the, you know, Bitcoin will go to one million. Bitcoin will become the you know, currency of the world, etc. Is is kind of pipe dreams. Mm-hmm. They don't see any kind of realistic uh, you know, thing for that. Now, think- personally, personally, I do think the genie is kind of out of the bottle on this stuff. If you, you know, if you have Bitcoin and the U.S. banned it, it would be a catastrophic blow to you know, the, the entire network, as it were. But it's still going to survive. You know, there's still hash rate elsewhere. There's still miners mining it. You can still, if you have this stuff, you can still transact with it. Even if it may not be illegal for you to do so, there's plenty of things that have been illegal for people to do throughout right. history, which they've still done. It's very, very difficult to actually physically prevent somebody from using the Bitcoin network or any cryptocurrency network for, you know, in general. But we're talking about Bitcoin here, so we'll talk about Bitcoin. But you're talking about preventing someone from engaging in a few basic cryptographic uh, operations and communicating with the Internet. Because that's what it is. When you have a key, that's just your, your private key for Bitcoin. It's just a long number. You can't prevent somebody from making a long number. You can't prevent them from using said long number to add it with some other long numbers. And you can't prevent them from accessing the internet. And if you can do all of those things, then you can use you know, the network. Even if you can't run a miner or a node or something like that, you can still, you can still interact with it. And this will allow you to interact with, you know, whatever black market exists or to move it to some off-seas jurisdiction where you have this or to sell it OTC to somebody, you know, whatever. So, yes, it may become difficult for users to legally, you know, above board interact with this, but actually preventing people from using this stuff is very, very difficult. Yeah, what I would say to my friends who asked me that is I would say I'm not buying the Bitcoin with the thought that it's going to go to a million dollars and I'm going to buy my future boat with it. I'm buying it for the main reason that maybe one day I'm going to need it to buy beef from another mm-hmm. farmer across town who takes Bitcoin. There- yeah, and this is kind of the primary reason for a lot of this stuff right now is as a hedge against whatever the governments are devising. And do you think that 
do you think that is a worthwhile hedge and that is something that is worth investing today in just in case? Yeah, I mean, I invest not only my own resources as far as you know, financially or whatever, but also my time in right. building this stuff. I you know, invest a significant amount of effort, and this is not just in a mercenary capacity. Like, yes, I do get paid well for it, but participating in this as a developer is you know, participating in kind of the future of this and the growth of the space in general, and particularly in the Ethereum side of it, that is something which I believe in quite strongly. Okay, so maybe we should talk a bit about Ethereum. So for someone who may not know, what are the big differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum? So Bitcoin was designed primarily with one purpose, which was to be money. You can send Bitcoin around, you can spend it, you can mine it, etc. But you can't do a lot with it. There's very limited capacities to do scripting or anything like that. You can't uh, you can't really do a lot with it on the Bitcoin blockchain. And Ethereum is designed not just as cryptocurrency, you know, something you can use to payment, but as a computing platform. You can deploy smart contracts to Ethereum, and that's a fancy way of saying a computer program. But these computer programs, since they're on this decentralized blockchain running under this very particular set of rules, means that you can deploy a contract that's going to do exactly what you think it's going to do every time. And you can do that to make contracts, as it were. You know, if I have a you know, lending terms with my bank, say I have a mortgage or something like that, then I have this legal agreement with them. You know, I'm going to pay them back if they don't. You know, if I don't pay them back, they can take the house, etc. But when you have Ethereum, this can all be codified into a smart contract. At that point, it becomes code, and it becomes it is not subject to interpretation or to legal disputes or to the whims of whoever is signing it, etc. You know, so if I if I lend something, then that you know, there's the terms that are kind of written into this contract and there's no way around those. I can't call up the lender and say, Hey, John, old buddy, old pal, can I just have like, you know, an extra two days to make this back up? I'm, I'm good for it. I swear. No contract doesn't care. I get liquidated and you can use this to do all sorts of things. You can swap assets. You can make payments in a trustless fashion. Like if I say you you just don't trust me at all, you have you know no no basis or no reason to think that I'm going to do anything that you want. We can still interact and make a transaction on the blockchain with each other using smart contracts. We don't have to have some shady meeting at a warehouse with, you know, a briefcase mm-hmm. of cash and you know, gunmen on either side to try to keep us from double crossing each other. You can write it in codes so that you physically can't double cross each other. And this is the real power of Ethereum because it's not just payment, money, it's computation, it becomes finance. You can, uh, you can make these rails called decentralized finance where you can 
you can have lending, borrowing, you can own assets, you can have complete control of these assets because it's a cryptocurrency that you own. And you can access all these different things which are not accessible to you otherwise in a trustless fashion. Interesting. Okay. And the reason why you can't do finance, as you said, or decentralized finance on Bitcoin is because of the way it was initially written. It doesn't have the potential for that. Yes, the architecture of Bitcoin, one, it doesn't it doesn't work in the same way. Um, the architecture is different at the underlying level, but also Bitcoin, just from the community of people who develop Bitcoin and who use Bitcoin, they have the design philosophy that they will not add this kind of stuff. Mm. And this is a this is a rational viewpoint from a lot of different perspectives we'll see what's what's ultimately correct but it is it's not just like oh we're, we don't like this other thing they don't want to add all this stuff because it does include risk it includes risk in the you know the, the crypto economic security model of the blockchain will become compromised or that there would be some technical issue introduced by all these changes like Bitcoin behaves very slow and ponderously to change. And that's as a feature, not as a bug, because if you move too fast, you can break things. And they are very much on the side of not breaking things. So that's why you see Ethereum has made all these rapid changes to it. You know, they've changed the entire consensus model from proof of work to proof of stake. They've done a lot of architectural changes to it and all those other things because they they're erring more on the side of getting out in front of all these different issues which are going to prevent it from being adopted at a large scale so you mentioned the proof of stake versus proof of work so if you could just walk through the difference between those two and then i've also heard of proof of transfer so what is the difference between those consensus mechanisms yeah, so again, it all comes down to having a real cost to making these, you know, to making blocks, making trans uh, transactions. Um, so proof of work, like we discussed, you have to basically solve complicated math problems, you know, using real electricity and real computational power. Proof of stake is you stake something valuable and if you behave badly, your valuable something gets taken away. Um, so you're incentivized to act honestly because you'll, otherwise you'll lose this thing which you've spent you know, valuable resources to acquire. And then the proof of transfer is also kind of a similar thing. This is mainly for like stacks and the Bitcoin system stacks being the, the Bitcoin like kind of layer two. Um, but that basically works with you, know, you transfer Bitcoin. You, you consume Bitcoin in order to mine blocks on stacks and you know, earn stacks. So the stacks become, have this kind of inherent value because of Bitcoin, which is valuable, created or is destroyed to, uh, or spent in order to create them. Okay, interesting. 
And a layer one versus a layer two coin. Could you explain the difference between those? Yeah, so layer one, here we're going to talk about Ethereum because this is where the layer one, layer two discussion really takes place. But the layer one blockchain is the basic blockchain. For Ethereum, you know, this is the Ethereum blockchain. It's the smart contracts, the Ethereum virtual machine that all of these smart contracts run in and all of that. This is where the, the crypto economic security comes into. This is the proof of stake for, for Ethereum and uh, you know, Ether, the token itself. This is all layer one blockchain. The problem is all this security comes at cost. You know, because you're having to perform all this computation in order for it to be decentralized, this computation has to be performed by hundreds and thousands of computers all over the world. And so you can't just have all of this for free. I can't just demand that you know, thousands of computers begin computing whatever I want for free. Otherwise, I can just saturate the network with garbage requests and the thing becomes unusable. This is why you have gas, which is an Ethereum concept, basically a fee with each transaction. You pay a little bit of Ether, and that incentivizes you to not send garbage, and it incentivizes the people that are securing the network to continue securing the network. And so that's part of that crypto economic security model. The problem is all this you know, expense of this, it has you know, its real world cost. And it's just not going to work for a lot of people. The fees are too high. You know, it costs three, five dollars to transfer ether. If you know, if you had to, to pay an additional five dollars every time you open your billfold, that would get old pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And for someone who's you're not from a you know, first world country that could be you know days wages or more to send a you know a contract if you're talking like real poverty it means making one swap on a token could be as much as you earn in a year and it's just not going to work you can't do that in any kind of you know, reasonable fashion and, and onboard people onto these blockchains and so the idea of the layer two is that you have to move some of this, this load, this real world cost into some kind of cheaper environment while not compromising on the security model of layer one. And so I've talked about this in length, particularly on the Bowtie Bull substack. It's probably a little bit more dense than you really want to get into in a podcast, but essentially what a layer two does is you take a bunch of transactions, you know, moving a token from here, interacting with a smart contract, sending you an NFT, whatever. And you perform all those in a cheap off-chain environment. And then through some mechanism, you tell the Ethereum blockchain, use the Ethereum blockchain to store and validate these transactions. So the Ethereum network doesn't have to do any of the expensive computation of actually processing all these transactions, doing any of that. It doesn't have to store any of the data that's associated with them. You just basically send the Ethereum mainnet kind of a condensed summary of these things took place. And this is the 
these are the results. This is what mm. the new blockchain looks like. And you can do some various schemes to val validate this, but basically on the Ethereum layer one blockchain, there'll be some validation step that occurs where you go, yes, these are correct. This all you know, happened. It's, this is the valid outcome of these things happening. This is all, everything's kosher and this is now confirmed. And then that becomes the, the new state of this layer two blockchain. And so that's the state of that being you know, who, who has what assets, what the, uh, you know, the code of all the different contracts and everything is. And so this, this lets you retain the security of Ethereum layer one because the Ethereum layer one still has its proof of state consensus. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's still secure. You, know, you still have to spend billions and billions of dollars to attack the network in any meaningful fashion. But um, so you don't have to reinvent all that wheel, but you're also not putting the actual computational load of these transactions onto that network. Mm. And this is how you can achieve the computational or the, the scaling. Of this You can process transactions much faster. They can be much cheaper because they're occurring in this cheap environment and then being validated in a kind of condensed summary format. Okay, that actually makes a ton of sense. I think I understand now the difference between L1 and L2. <laughs> Here's a very broad question that may be perhaps a bit dumb, but Ethereum seems to do a ton of things. It can do a lot of decentralized finance, as you said. There are so many altcoins out there. What problem are they at least proposing that they will solve that Ethereum cannot solve. Altcoins, meaning the other blockchains, Cardano, whatever. Whatever. Axit, like I don't Avalanche, like there's just thousands of them at this point. So like as someone who would one day be using the blockchain to conduct transactions, is there something that I would want to do that I cannot do on Ethereum? Does that question make sense? Yeah. So basically there's a couple of things here. One is something like Bitcoin, whereas the first thing, you know, the first you know, king of the king of cryptocurrency, it's got a lot of Lindy effect. You know, it has a good store value. It's perceived by everyone at least to have that. And you know, so it's worth having for its own kind of merit there. Right. Then there's Ethereum, which is going to be the the, the world computer, as it were. This is where all of your decentralized finance and your NFTs and uh, you know, everything that needs to be trustlessly computed happens. So that's kind of, those are the two main things. Everything else um, is either trying to solve a problem, which I think Ethereum already solves better. That's where a lot of these like Cardano and et cetera, come into they're like oh we have smart contracts we're faster we're like better in some kind of arcane technical way but they're they're just not or they just they don't have the scaling effects and network effects that ethereum does and they're just they're just not going to go anywhere and then there's kind of a, a fourth class which would be something that has a legitimate reason to exist which actually does something that ethereum can't 
And this would be something primarily to me, something like Monero or Zcash, something like that, where you have uh, private transactions. Because the Ethereum model uses accounts. So like you have a, a wallet address and this wallet address has a balance and that's, you, know, you can sum up basically all the, the transaction history of this to validate the balance of that account. You can see everything that affected. They got five in, they took five out, they got five in, they put three out. Okay, their new balance must be two. That's how you can, you can validate all that. Mm -hmm. That's all well and good. It makes things very simple. You can use it. Uh, very flexibly, but it's terrible for privacy. So if you want to have private blockchains, this is going to be some kind of layer two solution or a totally separate thing. Like uh, Monero Zcash being the two notable ones that allow you to have privacy in transacting. And privacy meaning they are not, those transactions are not recorded on the overall blockchain? In order to be, basically, they're not they're not tied to to your wallet in the same way. Um, you know, it's like being able to publicly inspect. Like this is the thing with Ethereum. You know, if I know your address, I know commoners' wallet addresses. You know, whatever. I can just look at this at right. any time that I want. I can see how much money you have. You know, I can see the bank account. I can see that you're, you're where you're spending your money. Right. You know, etc. And that just kind of sucks as a user experience. You know, I don't want people to see, you know, how much I'm spending on, a, you know, whatever. I don't want people to see how much money I have. Um, so where like Monero Zcash come in, you have um, the ability to kind of shield this. So it's not just sitting in your, your account, sitting in one spot. They have a different architecture. So it doesn't quite work in the same way. And then they use zero knowledge uh, cryptography. So that you can you can prove that this transaction is valid, and you know, so that it induced a state change of this, but uh, without actually revealing kind of the input information to that. So you can move stuff around without having it be visible. Although it will still all go into the blockchain, it's not it's not visible in the same way. I understand the need for that, and that makes total sense. But I'm struggling to understand how that is consistent with the blockchain economics or like the initial structure, because I thought it was that independent miners basically post the transactions on the blockchain and there's a public record of every transaction. So what is the zero knowledge proof? And I, I heard that term before. I have a vague understanding of it. How is that consistent that the transactions can be private and tied to the blockchain, but not posted on the final record? How would you know how much crypto I have in my wallet if it's not public? Yeah, so kind of the zero, and I'm not a huge expert on Monero or Zcash. I'm kind of just I'm aware of them and kind of the basics of how they work in kind of a general, a very particular fashion. I don't know a whole lot about them. But the way the zero knowledge proofs work is it uses some cryptography to allow you to prove conclusively that you know something without revealing the something. So the 
the example that we can use easily is the, the colored balls. So that I have a red ball and a green ball and you're colorblind. So you just see two balls. I tell you, and these balls are different and I know how to tell them apart. And you can go, okay, prove it. So you take the balls behind your back and you can swap them or not and bring them back out again. And I tell you, you swapped them or you didn't swap them. I'm not telling you which ball is which. You know, I'm not saying the left green balls in your left hand. Now the green ball is in your right hand. I'm just saying you swapped them. You didn't. And if you do this often enough, you can get a conclusive proof. If you did this a hundred times and I got it right a hundred times, you have pretty, pretty good assurance that I'm not faking it. I actually can tell the balls apart. I haven't revealed anything to you about how I'm telling them apart or which is which, only that I can tell them apart. And that's kind of the trivial zero-knowledge proof. And extending this to the blockchain, you can go, uh, you know, these transactions, like for a zero-knowledge roll-up, you'll have a bunch of transactions. You know, the, these changes in state produce this new, this new, uh, this new total blockchain state. You know, I made these changes. This is a new state. And transactions occurred which were sufficient to change this. You know, which valid transactions were made to occur this. And you can make a zero-knowledge proof of that. And then someone else can go and then verify this you know, without having any knowledge of what those transactions were. You can verify that, yeah, okay, this was legit because the zero-knowledge proof checks out. That makes sense. And I've read that um, that proof example before, but I finally understand it because of the way you described it. So that's very helpful for me. Um, so just for someone who is wanting to learn more about crypto and is just bombarded with so many different cryptocurrencies to choose from, like Monero, Zcash, Avalanche, Axios, whatever it is, is there a simple way for them to know if they're dealing with a shit coin? or with a real deal? Or is it really diving into the white paper, the economics, the tokenomics, and really understanding the thing? Or is there a way you can spot a shitcoin very easily? The kind of harsh but true thing for most people, if you're just getting into this, you don't really have any business looking at anything beyond Bitcoin and Ethereum. Mm. I'll, just be, I'll just be real with you. That's where most of the activity is. That's where most of the innovation is occurring. And anything else is really mostly trying to pump its own bags. Like you have, you have Solana and they have their own architecture. They do some different things. That particular blockchain is, is uh, laden, let's say, with a lot of issues like... Uh, a lot of VC investment mm -hmm. in their, uh, you know, their token, et cetera, things like that, which may not make it a particularly good buy, but at least it's, it's doing some interesting things, attempting to do some interesting things with its actual architecture. There are a few other things like that, um, like Cosmos, that whole ecosystem is also doing interesting things architecturally, which, uh, you know, have different, strengths and benefits from Ethereum. 
something like Avalanche or Polygon, those are layer one sidechains. They don't uh, derive their own security model from Ethereum. They're EVM compatible. So you can like deploy the same smart contracts on Ethereum as you can on them. But they're their own thing. They have their own security model. It would cost a different amount you know, to attack them versus Ethereum, etc. They don't they're no roll-ups in the sense that they don't inherit any security from Ethereum. So really, like, yes, I'm not just making a blanket statement that all you know, all crypto other than Bitcoin and Ethereum is worthless. There is no second best kind of thing. But in terms of efficiently spending your time and you're getting into the space, those are really the only two places where you should be spending any time. And you can branch out after that. That makes a ton of sense. Is in this similar guidance to what I've heard before. So on that topic then, perhaps we should discuss Chainlink. So mm-hmm. what exactly is Chainlink and the basic understanding that I have is that it can connect real world information to the blockchain, link it, if you will. And you can use that real world information to as inputs in smart contracts. So first, is that understanding correct? And then secondly, why would that be special to Chainlink? Yes, that's a correct understanding. So like basically, the blockchain doesn't have any way to see outside of itself. I can't, uh, I can't make a smart contract that's going to like browse the internet and you know, hook up to Twitter and tweet for me. I can't do anything like that. So if I want to have any kind of information about things which are happening externally to the blockchain, you have to have what's called an oracle, which is something that allows you to put that information into the chain. And that's what Chainlink does. It's an oracle provider. It's the biggest and most... Uh, successful Oracle provider, kind of the most trusted one, I would say also. And that's what it does. It puts real world information onto the chain. This can be anything from the price of a token, which like I have no idea, the, the blockchain doesn't have any idea what the US dollar even is. So how can it know what the US dollar price of Ethereum is at this particular moment? So if you need to have that for whatever reason, say like I'm trying to value something you know in, in dollars i need to know what it's worth in dollars and to do that i need oracles and so any kind of information like this is anywhere this is needed you need an oracle and in most cases that means you need a chain link meant let's kind of take an example here about something that's not just uh, putting prices on chain um let's say you're a gambler Let's let's say that you uh, you want to gamble on I don't know the Super Bowl, and I want to gamble with uh, with somebody else. I don't really trust them to pay me out if uh, if they win, or if uh, if I win rather. And so we make a smart contract, and the smart contract is going to ask an oracle who won the Super Bowl, and we're each going to put our our stake into that, and then. Whoever wins the Super Bowl, that information gets put into this oracle, and then we each get our, our payout. Whoever wins gets the payout, trustlessly, without you know, me having to hunt him down and, you know, hey, man, where's my money? And you can do this for not just for gambling, but for other stuff like uh, insurance or um, 
basically anything like that where you need flight insurance, crop insurance, things where you have to know the outcome of something that happened in the real world in order to make a change on the blockchain. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. And so in our discussion of layer one and layer two, would an Oracle count as a L2 coin on Ethereum? No, because it doesn't have the purpose of condensing transactions into, you know, or to reduce or to scale or anything like that. The oracles, they don't condense transactions. They actually create transactions. They create load. But what they do is they bring this real-world information on chain. And yes, there's like this off-chain kind of infrastructure that exists to, to support these. But it's not a it's not a layer two. They're not the like the chain link token exists you know, as part of their payment mechanism, as part of their staking, their whole thing. But it's not a like the the coin of a layer two. It's not the coin of a blockchain. It's a token that exists on Ethereum. Yeah, that's a that's where my mind was going. Is when I buy Chainlink, what am I really buying? Because I understand when I buy Bitcoin, I'm buying something that can be used to transact. And the same goes for Ethereum. With Chainlink, I'm buying the token of an Oracle. What, A, what value does that add to me today? And B, how would you personally like price that for future growth if you were thinking about it as an investment? Just in, like, so, what am I buying when I buy Chainlink? Yeah, so physically what you're buying, when you buy Chainlink tokens and it gets onto your wallet, you're buying a token on Ethereum blockchain. That token is, I think their token is at ERC-677 or 777. I think it's a 677. That's basically an ERC-20 token with just like some fancy extra stuff into it that lets it work for their system. But basically it's just an ERC-20 token for all intents and purposes as an investor. And all that means is that it's a, it's a token that you can, you can transfer around, et cetera, but it lives as a smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain. It's not its own you know, native token of a layer one. And as far as like pricing it or whatever, I'm going to defer most of that to the DeFi education substack. They do an excellent job of kind of uh, analyzing all of this from an investment perspective. Right, absolutely. And so I'm still struggling with like wrapping my head around that. I am buying a smart contract on Ethereum. So I'm buying the rights to... Let me, let me break this down yeah. for you because we can go into that. So the Chainlink token is a smart contract that exists on, on Ethereum. And what a token smart contract is, is it's a smart contract, a piece of code that has an idea of wallets have balances of this token. So commoner's wallet can have, you know, say a hundred chain link tokens in it. That's not like a stack of, you know, hundred poker chips sitting in your little MetaMask wallet. You know, you open up the drawer and your little fox face and there's like a hundred mm -hmm. poker chips sitting in there. No, mm -hmm. it's, it's not how that works. What you have is the smart contract has an associated balance. There's like a number recorded in this smart contract that says commoner has a hundred tokens. And when I go in there, I say Pickle has 50 tokens. 
And so if you want to send me some of this, then it changes, okay, your new balance, so you'll send me 10, okay, her new balance is now 90, Pickle's balance is now 60. And that's all that happens. There's no sending poker chips whizzing around through the internet. This balance, meaning your the number that's associated with your wallet in this contract is changing. So that's what actually happens like in the code when you have one of these. And ERC-20 and ERC-whatever, these are all standards for how these things should behave so that you can interact with them more seamlessly versus having to reinvent the wheel every time. Okay, I think I understand vaguely, but I think I think I get it more so than I did previously. So my next question would be then, we've seen so much chat GPT everywhere. And at fir my first question on that would just be, do you think this is something people should be concerned about in terms of replacing them, not only as contract developers, but just overall? Are you concerned about this AI in ChatGPT? And if so, why? If not, why not? It's definitely not going to be an issue for the short term, for at least for like programming technical stuff. The issue being that it, it has limitations currently, technical limitations with how much context it can understand, just hallucinating things, etc. Um, that said, it's still pretty good. Like, I will use ChatGPT for Python work. If I need to do something with Python, I'll use ChatGPT before I go Google search Stack Overflow. And that's saying a lot. Mm -hmm. Now, that's directly related to how much information there is on Google and Stack Overflow. Right. Like, if you try to use ChatGPT to try to help you with your solidity, like, it's, it's pretty rough. It, it can get you there, kind of, but you got to spend a lot of time massaging it. It's probably just... In a lot of cases, it's almost as effective to just write it yourself, unless you're writing something that's really boilerplate and you can prompt it effectively. Now, that's not to say the technical limitations can't be solved. I don't think you're ever going to see any kind of future where, like, the robots have taken over or whatever. But a lot of low-skill work is going to get eaten up by this. Um you know, maybe 10 years down the line or wherever, this thing is probably going to be like having a junior developer pair programming with you where you can kind of hand it off tasks like, hey, uh, can you write a unit test suite for this function that I just made? And it'll like go and write some pieces of code that'll test out and make sure everything works as intended. Like we're still quite a ways from just being able to seamlessly do that, but it is, uh, it is coming in my opinion. And so if it's coming in 10 years to be able to do that, why not in 20 years would it replace all software development if it's growing, or software developers rather? What is the limitation that prevents it from becoming that intelligent? I think in that point, you start to approach kind of the artificial general intelligence doomsday scenario kind of stuff. For it to be able to abstractly create in that fashion, I don't think that you can't get very good at responding to your prompts, you know, but for it to kind of have the spark of creation in itself, as it were, I, I don't see that happening. Interesting. So it's constrained to what already exists. And so it's like a very fancy 
an elegant Google search? Yes, it has, for one, yeah, it has to be trained on data. And a lot of this limitations is kind of, there's a lot of training data out there. I mean, that's not to say that it can't, uh, you know, with, with enough work, it can digest everything that you have access to right now, for one thing. But in order to, to actually you know, become creative in that kind of way, I think you would have to you would have to approach the kind of artificial general intelligence. It wouldn't be just like these these chat bots, which are basically just you know context. It's just looking up a lot of things based on context, and it has this very very intense detailed map of all this stuff relating to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not it's not thinking. It's not alive. It's a very complex algorithm. That's all it is. And, you know, it's sufficiently complex that you can interact with it and it has these kind of emergent properties like make you think, like, ooh, it's alive or whatever. But it's it's not. Mm-hmm. In a very fundamental way, it's not alive. I mean, you know, it's kind of the same way that we are. It doesn't think. It doesn't create. Well, that's uplifting because often I get very concerned with the possibility of artificial intelligence. So the basic level will most likely be replaced within the next decade, which I think is evident for the more graphic. This pain is absolutely coming for every kind of lower, like entry level grunt work kind of stuff, max pain across the board. That's that's pretty much guaranteed at this point. And today, so for example, for grunt work software development today, is that a requirement that you come out of college right now and you do very basic level software or will people just go from college and they'll just skip over that step and there will still be jobs as long as they are proficient enough to do it and they can use Chappie GPT to help them or whatever AI tool it is or will it only be like the best and the greatest that make it past that because they don't need as many engineers? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to suck for a lot of people for sure because the opportunities to get the kind of experience that you need in order to advance will become more limited that's kind of the main immediate knock-on effect that's going to make it very difficult for a lot of people because if i previously needed you know 10 10 junior developers to do you know this you know little things you know i tell them okay design this widget you know, I give them like my specs for the button should be red, it should do this, it should have this text, it should be at this location. Okay, go build me my button. And, uh, you know, then they go off and they work on it and then, okay, they come back to the button. And that kind of tasking is going to be heavily replaced by chat GPT and other kind of stuff, you know, AI tools. So you're going to have a lot more architectural things like instead of one person who's designing the website and then handing out button building tasks to people you know you have one kind of architect in charge of this and then he's handing out these tasks to the you know the ai tools instead and then it becomes harder to get the knowledge required to get to that architectural level that's the the primary issue with it which is why it's going to create a lot of a lot of pain for a lot of people because in order to overcome that, you either have to work really hard, you know, work on this stuff yourself, 
understand the nuts and bolts, which a lot of people, you know, may not kind of be cut out for to just kind of grind through that. Or you just have to be that good that you can kind of get past that. Either way, it, it cuts down the amount of people who are able to to cut it, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have several close people who just tried to get software engineering jobs in the past couple of years, and it was already quite difficult. Not to say that's because of AI, but it was very difficult to get a entry-level software engineering job, even with computer science degrees from good schools. And so the first wave of that now is also some of those grunt level entry work engineering jobs are going to places like in India where the workers are a lot less expensive to hire. Um, So that's one factor that is already limiting their potential access to those higher level jobs. And then I completely agree that if AI can do it, it's going to be completely on the onus of the young upstart to learn and build a great portfolio of projects on their own to prove that they deserve a chance at the senior and junior level and jump over that. And it's going to be very difficult, I imagine, to get there. Yeah, it's it's not going to be easy because, I mean, you have to, you lose access to a lot of this stuff and you lose access to you know, mentorship, to mm-hmm. just learning from experience from more experienced people absorbing this kind of institutional knowledge that you do as you move up through the ranks it's it's going to be hard it's going to be hard for a lot of people so if you're going to get into this probably want to get into it now (laughs) (laughs) probably good advice not going to get easier (laughs) just to finish up you are one of the most ardent advocates for the lurkers as you call them to join the jungle um, you often tweet about your experience, why you think that you, they should do it. They're wasting time. It's only going to help them. So I was just wondering, you know, how has the jungle impacted you and why are you such a advocate for them to join as well? I mean, the impact that the jungles had on my life just in general really cannot be overstated. I mean, I went from from being like just fat and depressed and stuck in this dead-end job no really like hope or potential really and I was just kind of kicking rocks and didn't wasn't going anywhere and the jungle was the kick in the pants that I needed to start fixing my health I mean just my day-to-day experience just existing is more you know much much better less painful because of the jungle uh, like i used to have all sorts of just aches and creaks and all that and it's all gone now because i mean you know i dropped like 50 pounds wow and yeah like it's i'm so much better shape now than before and that's just physical like mentally too it's so much better because like i no longer have this constant stress lingering over me of you know what if i lose my job you know i'm not gonna be able to make rent etc like just this scurrying rodent-like fear of being fired or of having any kind of financial hardship like back then before the jungle like i was you know i was not in a good spot and this is not like you know, i was working at mcdonald's either like i had an engineering job it's just like this you know the world's getting harder to exist in mm-hmm. middle class is just basically vanishing mm-hmm. 
And I was either going to have to accept like the slide into poverty or I was going to have to fix something. And joining the jungle as opposed to just lurking and implementing, you can lurk and implement, but I find that joining the jungle as an account and being active has been incredibly beneficial just because of networking primarily, because I have access to all these people that I would never have access to in real life. The most successful people I've access to in real life are like middle managers. Mm-hmm. And you're not getting rich or getting successful or escaping the crushing, you know, you know, economic mm-hmm. pressures of the current situation by listening to middle managers. It's just not happening. <laughs> and so like, you know, come here and I have access to like elite bodybuilders and you know, people that are running, you know, eight and nine figure e-commerce sites. And all of these just elite professionals in their field. And you can absorb all of this information. You can interact with these people who otherwise wouldn't give you the time of day now because mm. you have this bow tie on and you've proven that you're, you're, you're a serious person. You're taking action to, you know, to work on your life. And you, you kind of ask them like, okay, you know, a few pointed uh, questions like, what can I work on for this specifically? And then, you know, they may tell you, they may tell you like, Hey, you can do this. And if you go and do that, A, it's probably going to be the right thing that you need to do anyway, but B, they're going to take notice of that. Mm-hmm. And you can have this relationship with them at that point, which extends, you know, if you can become something more uh, beneficial, like my, my rise through the jungle, as it were, um, I started out when I started writing for uh, the Bowtie Island news site that Opossum did. Mm-hmm. We haven't really done a lot with that lately because everyone was writing with it and got busy. <laughs> but that, um, you know, I started writing these articles and I was terrible at it at first, but I picked it up quickly and I got to learn so much because I had access to this via Opossum. You know, I had access to Opossum and I would not have learned any of that uh, without his tutelage. And that writing led to um, writing for DeFi education, guest posting for that. And then that led to guest posting for Bowtie Bull and continued to build in that fashion, gain all this visibility. That visibility got me in the door with a bunch of different gigs. I've gotten uh, a lot of different resume building stuff um, from contacts throughout the jungle. Like uh, Bowtie Golem hit me up with uh, one contact that then just exploded into a bunch of other NFT contacts. So I've done a bunch of the NFTs all came from that one initial contact. And like, I really hadn't spoken to him a lot before that. It was just name recognition in the jungle. He's like, hey, this guy does contracts. Look him up. And um, same with that. Like my first DeFi development gig was with uh, Bowtie Heron got me in the door to DeFi protocol. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it's all, it's all been uphill or uh, you know, downhill. It's all been increasing, <laughs> whatever, I mean, whatever you want the metaphor to be. But everything's been going, uh, been going up and to the right since then, as it were. But, you know, people just need to start. And that's the big thing because it's, you know, I've been there. I, I tweet about this so much because People don't really have an excuse when they look at my story because 
I'm not some special guy. I wasn't some elite, you know, bodybuilder. I wasn't some sales professional and not some software engineer with 15 years of experience at Google, you know, telling you how easy it is to break into smart contract development. Like I'm just some guy. I'm just like a fungible smart guy. You know, I was, I was pretty good at school. You know, I didn't really have like a lot of trouble studying, but I just, you know, okay, you're so smart. You know, what, what good has it done with you? Like, I didn't have anything to show for it. And now, fast forward with all this, this effort that I put into this, and now I have something to show for it. I have all this, uh, my life is just better in so many different ways. And you can't, you can't achieve any of this. You can't reap any of those benefits unless you actually start and start putting in the work. Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you constantly try to send the elevator back down. You do the hackathons. You're suggesting niches for people to make accounts for. Like I just have noticed specifically from your account, the effort to get lurkers involved, which I think is quite admirable. And I completely understand your ethos or your authority on the subject because you're saying you're just a normal guy and you made it happen. And that's what people need to hear because I completely understand the idea of, oh, well, sales guy is just a 20 years veteran selling God knows how much. Bo Teibel was an investment banker and he started all these businesses and Ox is a bodybuilder and so is his hot wife. And like how it, I don't need to push myself because they're already the top dogs. It's not replicable, but it is replicable. Mm -hmm. And yes. that's what is so powerful about the jungle because you're not the only story I know of someone who has completely changed their life in what, a year and a half, two years. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the community of people. And I think that is why it is important to make an account with a bow tie and with a cartoon on it, because it really is a community that you can track yourself against. That is the most powerful part is that you can watch people who were in the exact same spot as you two years ago, absolutely killing it. And you're like, wow, two years have gone by. I haven't made the right choices. I haven't seen the progress that they have. Maybe this time I will, because now I have proof that it can be done. And it's only two years. What's two years of your life? That's the biggest thing that I have learned from the jungle that Bowtie Bull says you know, give up three and you'll be free. In the grand scheme of things, three years of your life is not that much to really, yeah. really, really try and think about how much better the rest of it could be. I'm in the the trenches right now with work, with the side hustle. And I had like a really bad day at work and I had to get up the next day. Like I was up really late at the office and I came in the next day and I'm walking and I'm feeling, as you would say, like a rodent, like a scurrying rat through the streets and I'm just walking. I'm like, I'm a rat. I'm never going to get out of this. This is going to be my life. It's going to be my life. And then I thought for a second and I said, this is what they want me to think. This is the moment where I'm <laughs> supposed to give up. I don't know if you've seen the last dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. My dad's a huge fan of Michael Jordan. He said everything was personal. Everything was a personal attack against him and that fired him up. And I was like, this is all by design. They're trying to keep me in the matrix. They made this week really hard. So I give up. And it's not going to win. It's not going to It's not gonna work because I have the jungle and I know it can work and I'm not giving up. Yeah, the support network has been incredible. Like just the, the quality people that are here, 
and a lot of them are not you know content creators or whatever necessarily but there's just like good solid people that are here that will help build you up you know keep you going through the hard times and it's it's very valuable and i would not have gotten where i am today without that support from these people you know i recognize that you have to put in the work yourself, but having this network has just been incredibly effective. Yeah. And to think some random investment bankers decided to start this thing. That That is what really gets me sometimes is that they were like, what if we convinced a bunch of people to do the same thing that we did? And there's no reason why they can't succeed. Mm-hmm. It's pretty incredible when you think about it because most of what the jungle became, I mean, you know, bull shapes it and still does. You know, it's not it's not out from under that stage yet, but a lot of what it's become has been very emergent. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, here's the kind of the basic framework. Here's a few like, you know, key individuals early, but a lot of it since then has been people stepping up and taking advantage of it but they wouldn't have done it on their own. God knows I wouldn't have. Yeah, I wouldn't have either. I would have continued to languish. And that's the fascinating part. I haven't really thought about that in a while, but like it was dormant in all of us. And then some random cartoon told us to start. And we said, why not? And as Ox would say, he said it would be a delusional self-belief. That's what you have to have to start one of these accounts a delusional self-belief that you're going to make it even when you have no reason to believe <laughs> that to be the case. <laughs> um, yeah. Like for me, I keep going back to this, the, the, the first 90 day challenge with Ox, you know, he does like 90 days, you know, best, uh, best improved physique improvement gets like a one ether. That's back when like ether was like $4,000. And I remember this very, very distinct feeling of like, a pivotal choice moment. I was like sitting there looking at this post. I'm like, you know, you need to lose weight. You know, you need to get in better shape. You know, you need to start doing all this stuff. If you're not going to do it now for like the you know, chance of winning $4,000 in this like very, you know, uh, clear cut, you know, defined goal, if you can't do this like 90 day challenge, you're never going to do anything with the rest of your life. Is, is that what you want? Is that what you're, you're happy with? And I said, no, no, I'm not happy with that. And I signed up for the you know, account. I started doing the challenge. I didn't win. I didn't win the $4,000 or the one ETH. But I dropped like 30 pounds over that. And uh, you know, it started. that's what started it all. That taking back control over you know, my life, taking responsibility for my own actions, that's where it all began. And that's the kind of the core realization of the jungle is you, know, you have to take responsibility for your own actions. Yeah. You know, no one is coming to save you. You have to take, you know, take charge and whatever happens, whether you, you know, sink or swim, it's all on you. Which is both terrifying and also energizing because when you win, you create that out of nothing at all. Yes. I, and that's, that's the thing is it's, it is terrifying. Like, I understand that. I felt that that's what kept me down for so many years is that realization that 
you know, whatever you, if you succeed or fail, it's on you. That's incredibly hard to bear. And many people cannot bear that. And so they just kind of live their lives in unconsciousness because they cannot accept this. Because once you accept that premise, there's no going back. You're going to, you're going to make it or you're going to die trying because you can't live with yourself if you don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a very profound way of saying that. That if you know that your choices are what matter and you don't win in the end, you didn't work hard enough. And so that's, I was talking to Lemmings about this, like the flip switches in your head and you cannot go back to where you were. When you understand that this is really about your effort, your creativity, your just baseline willingness to suffer, if you cannot go back to the way you were before and say, you know, whatever, man, like I bet those cartoons, they're going to fail in a couple years, like it's not going to work out. It's going to be fine. I'll be just fine in my middle management job in my cubicle. It's a good life over here. There, There's no going back. And it's painful in a lot of ways. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> is. I mean, you just in terms of like how much I've worked and you know suffered over the past two years, I mean, it's, it's hands down. I mean, it's the worst, you know, kind of most intense effort and the most suffering that I've ever had to deal with, you know, and that's working, working hard, you know, as being the most suffering, like, yeah, first world problems. Okay. But, you know, you, the point is it's not, it's not easy. It is not easy. It's never going to be easy. It's going to suck. It's going to suck worse than anything you ever do. But you know, when it comes out on the other side, it's freedom. And like just the changes that I've seen so far, and I have been a long way from making it total. But now, I mean, if I lost my job tomorrow, I, I would still be okay. Like I wouldn't, you know, be happy about it, obviously. But I can still make it. I make a living wage from being an anonymous cartoon pickle. Exactly. And if that does, from in two years, in, in two years of doing this, and if that doesn't fire you up, I don't know what will. <laughs> A fermented vegetable, to be specific. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been so much fun. I learned a ton. Thank you for entertaining my slightly inelegant questions. Um, for those who are listening, where would you like to direct them right now to hear more from you and read more of your stuff? My Twitter is Bowtie Pickle and bowtiepickle.substack.com. Those are my two primary uh, uh, ways of getting in touch with me do posting on a on a crypto security getting hired in uh in crypto and web3 development and uh you know how to keep yourself safe because it's, it's not easy this is the wild west right now and you need to be sharp on your toes awesome well thank you again for taking the time to come on and have a great rest of your day thanks for having me Thank you so much for listening. This has been yet another episode of Common Sense. If you liked the conversation, please consider hitting that follow button on Spotify. Oh, and tell everyone you've ever met to do the same. And while you're feeling generous, why not subscribe to my YouTube channel? I promise I've ridiculed at least one of the identity groups you dislike. You have a great day now.